Congress officially moves to redefine marriage without sufficient religious liberty protections. And I will tell you what I think about that from a political, legal, constitutional, and also theological perspective. And then we are talking to my friend Pedro Gonzalez about a recent report that he published for the American Principles Project just fascinating and so detailed called the transgender leviathan what is the money what are the profits uh, behind transgender treatment and activism this is really important for us to know so we'll be discussing all of this today this episode is brought to you by our friends at good ranchers go to goodranchers.com slash alley that's goodranchers.com slash alley All right, guys, first, I want to talk about this so-called Respect for Marriage Act. We've talked about it. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, um, and then we talked about it over the summer, who defines marriage and why it's important. But I want to get more into what is actually happening with this bill right now. Before we get into it, I just want to show you YouTube viewers that I've got my Christmas merch on my new relatable Christmas crew neck sweatshirt in olive that I love. It kind of matches my wall back there. I'm going to try to turn around, but I can't talk into the microphone when I do. So, oh, there you go. I don't even have to turn around. You can see it. That's what the back of the sweatshirt looks like. And let me say, I was a little concerned that it was a little bit too high on the sweatshirt, but When you put sweatshirts on, you know, you kind of roll up the bottom a little bit. And so when you do that, it's really like perfect placement. This is a size large. I got a large and I would typically say that just like in most clothes, just so to use me as a reference, ladies, I'm like a medium gal. But in sweatshirts, you know, I like them a little roomier so you can layer and it's just more comfy that way. And so I got a large. I really like how it fits super cute, very happy with the color, very happy with the design. Also, it comes in white. And then we've got Raise a Joyful Ruckus, a play on Raise a Respectful Ruckus, one of our mottos here in blue and also in olive. And then we've got our little uh, Pitbull stickers, which are still making you some of you angry in the YouTube comments. Um, and so we've got lots of good stuff. And then I also love our new little Share Your Arrow sticker. It's so tiny and I really like it. Um, And so we've got that available and much more in our merch store. We'll put the description in the, uh, we'll put the link in the description of this episode so you can click on it. Relata Bros. I'm still, okay, so Relata Bros, by the way, seems to have kind of taken off for some of you because I've got messages and comments and reviews saying that you're a Relata Bro. And so now I'm like, well, I feel like I have to use it. I'm still thinking of something for the ladies. Related bells, related gals. It's all a little bit cheesy for me. And yet, if you guys like it and want these nicknames as an identity marker for relatable listeners, then I am happy to oblige. And maybe we can even get some merch one day with this. So let me know what you think about those names, but related bros out there. um, This is like a great gift for your loved one, for your girlfriend, for your wife, maybe just for your sister or for your mom who loves Relatable. But for the Christmas merch, you should definitely get it before Christmas time. But we've got lots of other merch that you can actually get them for Christmas if you're interested. All right. 
Let's get into the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, as we uh, talked about a couple weeks ago. The problem with this, according to Alliance Defending Freedom, who is an organization that I really trust, um, this is egregious for religious liberty. So let me read you part of why it is so troubling for those of us who care about religious liberty. And what I mean by that is that I believe that mosques, that churches, that synagogues should be able to function as they see fit in alignment with their religious beliefs without fear whatsoever of a lawsuit of any kind of legal reprisal. And that is what this bill that will be signed into law takes away in the same way that the Equality Act does. The Equality Act is an attack on the theological beliefs and practices of churches and private schools and religious nonprofit organizations by forcing them to comply with newfangled um, ideas of gender and sexuality and redefinitions of marriage. And so people who say, well, you know, I believe in the Respect for Marriage Act because I believe in the separation of church and state. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because this actually obliterates the separation of church and state. A lot of people who say separation of church and state, they think that its only intention was to protect the state from the church. That was not its intention. Its main intention was to protect the church from the state. And so the Equality Act, the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, actually uh, tears down those walls by getting the state involved in churches um, and not offering the protections that we are supposed to have under the First Amendment to be able to operate as religious people as we see fit. And there are people who are saying, oh, you know, that's not true. Like David French, he wrote this whole long article saying, uh, no, this is actually respecting religious liberty too. We shouldn't have a problem with that. But he actually says, and I asked him about this, no response. Um, he actually says in there, oh, well, this bill doesn't pretend that it addresses all religious liberty concerns. Like corporations, If what kind of protections do they have against complying uh, against having to comply uh, with this new redefinition of marriage. There are lots of things that he even admits that the bill doesn't address, and yet he doesn't really even attempt to talk about those things and to say, well, yeah, that's a problem. That is problematic. Um, but let me read you what ADF says about this. So they say, while proponents of the bill claim that it simply codifies the 2015 Obergefell decision, the Obergefell decision was the Supreme Court decision saying that people, that gay people have a right to uh get married in the eyes of the law, in reality is an intentional attack on the religious freedom of millions of Americans with sincerely held beliefs about marriage. The Respect for Marriage Act threatens religious freedom in the institution of marriage in multiple ways. It further embeds a false definition of marriage in the American legal fabric. That, of course, is the most important to me. Um, and I'll just pause right there, is that marriage cannot be defined by the state. Marriage can't be defined by the American government. It can't be redefined by the American government. Marriage is pre-civilizational. Even if you do not believe 
that the Bible is the word of God, which I understand not everyone in America believes. I don't believe in forcing everyone in America to believe that. You couldn't even do that if you tried. But whether you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, it was still a book written thousands of years ago in which we see the definition of marriage in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. So even if you just see it as a historical document, even if you see it as a work of uh, fiction, it still has served as the foundation of the definition of marriage, or at least speaks to what people thought was the definition of marriage thousands and thousands of years ago that we did not just see in ancient Israel, but we saw repeated in societies, Christian or not, around the world who simply saw the natural reality of marriage being between a man and a woman for the purpose not just of procreation, although that has traditionally been the most one of the most important aspects of marriage, but also for the stability of society, for the protection of the children who are going to grow up and end up leading these civilizations and nations. Also for the preservation of values, for uh, dependency on one another rather than a dependency on the state. Conservatives used to know that the natural family, mother Father, child was the incubator of liberty, was the nucleus of society. You know, you've got a lot of conservatives saying that you can't um, you can't diminish or you can't replace the definitions of male and female, that a man can't be a woman, a woman can't be a man. Probably every conservative person who identifies as a conservative would say that. And yet they somehow say that redefining marriage is different. No, by redefining marriage as something other than between one man and one woman, you are saying that men and women are indeed interchangeable. You are saying that there really is no difference between two men getting married, two women getting married, and a man and a woman getting married, which is the same argument that transgender activists make when they say that there is no difference between men and women, which, by the way, is an argument that feminists pushed for 50 years ago, and the chickens are now coming home to roost because of that idea, which really goes all the way back to the garden, but we won't get into all of that. I mean, if you believe that marriage can legally be defined as something that it has never, ever been throughout history, you are basically saying that men and women are interchangeable, that mothers and fathers are interchangeable. If you are legally recognizing marriage as between two men, you are saying that they have a right to children. They have a right to then rent the wombs of women, to buy the eggs of women, to create a child, to purposely take him or her away from her mother and the woman who carried them, because that is what it takes for them to have any sort of biological child. And you are taking away from children the firm foundation of a natural nuclear family. And that is going to have long-term consequences on the stability of your nation. And if you don't believe me, take a look around. Like how can a conservative, you claim to be a conservative, you claim to see the insanity of transgender ideology, of drag queen story hour, um, of all of the sexualization that is so pervasive as we've been talking about this week in society and not see that every single part of the sexual revolution for the past 50 years led us here. Like you can't logically separate the obliteration of the definition of natural marriage 
uh, from the transgender activism that we're seeing, you see that it all goes together. Like for the past 50 years, from the sexual revolution of the 1960s to today, whether you're talking about the normalization of um, the normalization and commercialization of widespread and widely accessible birth control pills, hormonal birth control pills, no fault divorce. um, And then, of course, the redefinition of marriage. All of this has played a part into the absurdity that we are seeing in the denial of gender, because just as uh, transgenderism denies the biological differences really between man and woman, so does the redefinition of marriage. And so it is really difficult for me to understand how a conservative can really be a conservative and support this. You're not just saying, oh, let's just live and let live. The government shouldn't have a say in marriage. They shouldn't have it. We should just let adults live how they want to live. You don't really believe that, do you? Adults should just be able to live how they want to live. Do you believe that five people should be legally recognized as in a, a marriage and that they should be able to bring a child in? And that that child should be forced into an unstable and statistically very risky home? Like, do you believe that an adult should be able to marry a dog? Do you believe an adult should be able to marry a child? If not, why not? What is it in your mind about childhood that separates uh, them from this conversation? I know what it is for me because I see the biblical standard and the civilizationally um, healthy standard of marriage between one adult man and one adult woman. And so, of course, you do think that the state has something to say about marriage in which two people can be involved in a marriage. And so people saying, oh, I'm just small government, live and let live. You don't really believe that. You believe that there are lines to be drawn about what should be a legal, uh, a, a legal marriage, Right. And so why is your line here and not on natural marriage? That's where mine is. So the ADF goes on to say it jeopardizes the tax exempt status of nonprofits that exercise their belief that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. It endangers faith based social service organizations by threatening litigation and liability risk if they follow their views on marriage when working with the government. It could make religious freedom and free speech cases harder to win. The truth is the Respect for Marriage Act does nothing to change the status of same sex marriage or the benefits afforded to same sex couples following a Burgerfell. It does much, however, to endanger religious religious freedom. And so to try to rectify this, uh, Senator Mike Lee, uh, along with uh, Marco Rubio and James Lankford, these are Republican senators, they tried to put forth additional amendments to the bill to protect uh, religious liberty. So Marco Rubio says that the bill right now does not protect faith-based organizations besides the ones specified in the Collins-Baldwin amendment. Collins is a Republican senator. Baldwin is a Democrat senator. They proposed an amendment to at least look like they're protecting religious liberty. Marco Rubio is saying that their amendment does not actually do this. He says that other organizations could still be sued by individuals because they won't comply with this redefinition of marriage. Rubio filed an amendment to strike the private right of action from the bill. Mike Lee filed an amendment to prohibit discrimination against people who believe in the biblical view of marriage. James Lankford filed an amendment to clarify that faith-based groups with a traditional view of marriage that provide social services under state contracts cannot 
cannot be deemed state actors and sued for discrimination. Also eliminates the ability of a private individual to sue a faith-based group for not condoning gay marriage. And these amendments failed. They failed. So Democrats are pretty open about this. They do not care about your religious liberty. They do not want you to be able to abide by what you believe the Bible says or your religious text says about marriage. And so them saying separation of church and state is a lie. They very much believe that the state should be involved in your church and tell you what to do. Like we see the writing in the wall in Europe and other countries in which it is illegal to even say things like what Romans 1 says about homosexuality. If you think that the Democrats here are any less radical than that, you are kidding yourselves. And every time they pass a bill like this, every time a bill like this is signed into law, they get closer to it. And the fact that we have feckless and cowardly and just weak and intellectually flimsy Republicans who call themselves conservatives who aren't able to see the damaging effects of the sexual revolution, both here and abroad, tells you something about who we're voting for, tells you something about the state uh, the country is in. Now, the bill is not done. It doesn't go to the president's desk yet. Uh, This is from CNN. The House will now need to approve the legislation before sending it to President Joe Biden's desk to be signed into law. The House is expected to pass the bill before the end of the year, possibly as soon as next week. Um, So we will see, however, if there are more religious liberty exemptions, protections put in the final version of the bill. So it could be very important for you to call and email your representatives in this in the House of Representatives uh, in the House of Representatives to ensure that religious protections are placed in the bill. Now, it is still wrong. It's still egregious because it's still trying to redefine something that the state just does not have the power to redefine. Um However, the least that we can do is to hope for the religious protections that can be placed into the bill to ensure that your nonprofit organization, your Christian adoption agency, uh, your church, your private school, you as a Christian business owner are not going to be sued because you are simply abiding by your religious beliefs about marriage and about sexuality. If the left is honest, they really don't care about those protections at all. But if Republicans are worth anything, shouldn't they guarantee that? I mean, Republicans are now the majority in the House. You're saying that you can't accomplish that? Come on. Um, And so that's where we are. Now, obviously, from a Christian perspective, just to close this segment out, we know the definition of marriage. The definition of marriage is, as we use this alliteration a lot, rooted in creation, as we see in Genesis 1. It's reiterated throughout scripture, such as, for example, in the command to honor your father and mother, those gender designations are not arbitrary or accidental, repeated by Jesus himself in Matthew 19, 4 through 5. It's very explicit about the definition of marriage there. Of course, Jesus is God. So whatever God says in the Old Testament, Jesus also says, It is uh, representative of Christ in the church, as we see in Ephesians 5. Christ is the bride, his church, or Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Again, those gender role designations are not arbitrary or accidental. And in that way, it is also reflective of the gospel. The Bible starts with a marriage and ends with a marriage that is not 
accidental. And so the definition of marriage is hugely consequential for the Christian. It is not something that you can compromise on and still be theologically sound, period. It's not one of the secondary or tertiary issues. It is the underlying narrative of the entire canon of Scripture. It's that important. It has gospel significance. It has spiritual significance. And we also believe as Christians that Christ is Lord overall. So while we can't expect everyone in America to uh, believe the same way we do and to live the same way we do, and while we cannot inflict that by force for them to believe what we believe. We also believe that our politics, that our voting, that our values cannot be separated from the belief that God is in control. If you believe Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth, then you believe his definitions of things. You submit to his authority. If you believe that, you believe that he is in charge. You believe that He, his ways are better. You believe 1 John 4-8. Uh, that God is love, then you are you are not being loving by disagreeing with him through your politics or through how you vote. If God is love and God says in Genesis 1 that God made them male and female, that is his definition of marriage, then I am not only loving God, but also loving my neighbor by reflecting that definition in how I vote. Do not allow the world to bear the authority for what is loving and what is not. They're going to call you a bunch of names. You stay true to God's word, knowing that his ways, his definitions are always better, not just for us, but for society as a whole. The more godless we get, the more chaos we will see. But thankfully, Jesus reigns. Thankfully, Jesus is coming back. Thankfully, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he will be in perfect authority for ever and ever. Until then, we raise a respectful ruckus about the things that matter. And in this conversation that I'm about to have with my friend Pedro Gonzalez, we are talking about something that we need to be raising a respectful ruckus about, especially to our friends, especially within the church. We are talking about the Leviathan that is transgender activism and the money that is a part of that. It's really important for us to know that. And so before we get into that conversation uh, with Pedro, which you're really going to love, let me uh, take a quick pause and tell you about our first sponsor of the day. Okay, Covenant Eyes. This is an amazing service to protect you and your family from the damaging effects of pornography. I don't have to tell this audience just how dangerous and pervasive porn is. The age that kids are exposed to pornography is getting younger and younger. For boys, it is sometimes the age of nine. And you just want to put all of the safeguards possible in place to try to protect their minds and their eyes and their hearts. And so you need to check out Covenant Eyes. This is a software that you download on all of your devices that blocks porn from popping up. It blocks any website that may have pornography or advertisements or things like that. And so it's not only protective for your kids, it's also protective for you and your marriage. There are accountability features too uh, that you can use just as tools to protect yourself and your relationships. So get Covenant Eye software, block porn on your and your children's devices, model online integrity for your kids. Get Covenant Eye's accountability software for free for 30 days by visiting coveyes.com slash Allie. That's C-O-V-I-S dot com slash Allie. 
Pedro, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, This time, I want to talk about the work that you have put into this report about the transgender leviathan. First, what made you take on this massive endeavor of looking at where the money and where the power is coming from in this movement? Well, Ali, thanks so much for having me. And I actually didn't know just how big the problem was until I delve into it. It started with a feeling that the criticisms against transgenderism, I don't want to use the term unserious, but it, it was like we were dealing mostly with sort of making fun of yeah. you know, the, these seemingly goofy uh, left-wing people, you know, epitomizing someone like Sam Brinton uh, in, in the Biden administration, right? Um, but I thought there, there has to be something more to this because despite you know all evidence against all reason, this stuff continues to advance and it continues to proliferate. So there has to be yeah. something more going on. And that's when I started to look at basically the incentive structure, the interest groups behind transgenderism. And it culminated in an article for the New York Post in the last two years, uh, it was either 2020 or 2021 that I wrote. And I use the term the transgender industrial complex because, mm-hmm. again, when I started to take a closer look at this, I realized like, okay, there's there's a lot more than just goofy left-wing ideology here. Like this is actually an extremely well-funded, well-organized machine that has, it's not going to slow down on its own just because you can make the better argument because there's just, there's too many interested groups uh, behind this. And that article for the New York Post seems to have changed the way that a lot of people, uh, at least the ones that read it and told me that they read it, were looking at the issue, where initially they were kind of just confused, you know, just scratching their heads at, at you know, the idea that you can just snap your fingers and, you know, take some hormones and, and undergo a mastectomy or double mastectomy and and and, and become a, mm-hmm. a, you know, a man or whatever. Um, but then when you add the interest component to it, it starts to make a lot more sense. And so that 700-word article uh, inspired this 10,000 word report that yeah. although it's about 40 pages or so, including the, including the, uh, the notes, um, it still only scratches the surface. That, that's why I chose the name of the Leviathan. I didn't know what to call it. So the, the lie, the biblical monster came yeah. to mind because it's this, this enormous creature, uh, that you can't really ever see because it's always sort of beneath the surface and you can only really kind of catch glimpses of, of, of its immensity. And mm-hmm. I mean, again, this is, I, I write in the report, this is not exhaustive as long as this is. Yeah. L- let me give people an example of what you're talking about, just to kind of give an idea of how profitable this is in the Leviathan that you're referring to. And this is from your report. Consider the case of L. Bradford, who began man to female transition as a teen and notably was encouraged by YouTube videos to undergo the process. That is something that I hear in a lot of these stories, YouTube, Reddit, Tumblr, um, different forms of media TikTok. in which these kids, TikTok, they may be kind of predisposed to this kind of thing. And this is just yeah. my own aside here. Um, or maybe they were lonely or they were depressed or they were anxious or they're dealing with some kind of instability in their family life. And though, so they're simply looking for some kind of community and belonging. Then the algorithm, I mean, talk about a part of this Leviathan, the algorithm is kind of feeding into this confusion. And once you click on one video, it shows you more videos. Before you know it, you're being affirmed into this new identity. And I know that we're supposed to pretend like that doesn't exist, but it does. 
anyway. Was encouraged by YouTube, you say, uh, to undergo the process. Bradford paid around $30,000 for gender confirmation surgery, so-called, and roughly the same amount for facial feminization surgery, plus a breast augmentation surgery that runs between $5,000 and $10,000. Hormone therapy costs at least $1,500 per year. In Bradford's experience, who plans to be a lifelong user, as is common with transgenderism, the drugs are incredibly expensive. They also act as accelerants. Most people who start them move on to surgeries, and that doesn't even include the different kinds of reproductive technology that is then necessary down the line for these people to have children when you're talking about surrogacy, if it's females, talking about freezing their eggs, IVF, all that stuff. So, wow, that that's a lot. Yeah. And by the way, before we come back to the, the question of money, you're right about the phenomenon of what is there, there are two terms that are used to describe this. And there's, a, there's a doctor named uh, Lisa Lippman who's written mm-hmm. about this, so basically how transgenderism spreads through peer contagion and social contagion. Peer contagion is exactly what it sounds like, things that uh, children will learn and imitate from their peer groups. Social contagion is similar, but typically refers to things that are things that we see through social media or you know media in general, right? Uh, things in, in the social atmosphere. So what Lippmann argued in an article that uh, got her pretty severe backlash, because it's true, of course, right? So that's that's why these that's why uh, studies that we don't like uh, are are severely qualified or unpublished, or the the authors become canceled. It's because they're, they're often the, because they're true. true. Okay. And so what Lippmann observed was is that transgenderism seems to be spreading in in much the same way that things like anorexia do. And when she spoke to parents who have children who experienced uh, so-called uh, gender dysphoria, or in this case, the rapid onset of confusion about their bodies, it was usually preceded by their children spending a lot of time on social media and by members of their child's peer group also experiencing confusion about their identity and their bodies. And that that almost in every single case that happened immediately before their own child decided that, you know, I I think I'm a boy or I think I'm a girl or whatever. And and it spreads the same way as anorexia and the way that anorexia spreads. I mean, and and the funny thing is, is that most people agree that anorexia spreads in this way through peer groups and through social networks, right? That basically one person in a peer group, obviously mostly girls, will become anorexic because she'll be fixated on, you know, unhealthy body image or whatever. I mean, I think transgenderism is is actually uh, the most unhealthy kind of fixation that you could have with regard to one's body, uh, but that's how anorexia works, right? A girl becomes fixated on some bo- on a, on uh, an idea of of the ideal body image. Uh, she engages in in behavior that's self harming, and then her other friends in her in her immediate peer group will imitate her, and then it'll spread beyond the immediate peer group through social media or through social networks. And Lippmann is saying this seems to be how transgenderism is, is, is spreading, specifically among, among girls, girls. But obviously, it's not just it's not just girls that are uh, that are doing this. Um, and it's totally true. And and she got tons of backlash for it. But I, I talk about this in my report. But on on the question of money, uh, until recently, if you said that that transgenderism uh, transgenderism is extremely lucrative, you might have been you know dismissed. You know how could you even say that this is this is about saving lives right and reducing suicidality and things like that well 
you, you recently had this video that this is just one example. You recently had this video that was surfaced uh, where a doctor, Shane Taylor, professor and physician at Vanderbilt Clinic for Transgender Health, was saying that the way that I convinced uh, Nashville to get progressive on transgenderism and opening a, a clinic to do this stuff was by explaining that this is extremely profitable. And she said that uh, female to male chest reconstructive surgery, uh, very that's a wonderful euphemism, right, yeah. uh, can be as much as forty thousand dollars. And she specifically said, mm. even routine, routine, as in a repeat customer, routine hormone therapy uh, can be thousands of dollars. And I mean, that that's I think this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. When you're talking about someone that decides to you know become trans, you're really talking about a lifetime uh, medical consumer who will have to you know go back to the doctor's office. Uh, and, and will basically be um, hooked on on drugs. And I mean, it, it's really fascinating when you think about it as, as a kind of uh, just like a, as a kind of addiction almost. Yeah, right. Uh, tell me a little bit more about specifically um, Lupron and then AbbVie, which is Lupron's manufacturer. You found out some things about not just this drug, but also this company and who they're donating to and why they're so influential, right? Yeah. On the state level, one of the people that has received money from uh, AbbVie's generous giving is uh, State Senator Scott Weiner, uh, yeah. a California Democrat in San Francisco, who rec who tweeted that as an idea for a bill, he would like to propose a Drag Queen 101 to be included in K-12 curriculum, mm -hmm. and attending Drag Queen Story Hour would satisfy the requirement. Scott Weiner was uh, someone who co-authored a bill to reduce the penalty for knowingly infecting someone with HIV, uh, which was signed into law. And he also did some work with what he said was uh, removing the stigma from how we handle uh, sex offenders. So, uh, yeah, yeah pedophile sex offenders. He right. worked That's to right. uh, reduce the penalty for uh, sex offenders who offended a child as long as the age gap was just 10 years. And so he said that that was advancing equality for LGBTQ yes. people. You can make of that what you will. <laughs> but really, every perverse and just absolutely disgusting bill that you can think of coming out of California is um, because of Senator Scott Weiner. So yeah. you're saying that he was donated to by AbbVie, by this yeah. company that creates Lupron that is used to yeah. block the puberty process of children. Yeah, that's right. And so Lupron has a long and uh, complicated history. It was originally developed by Abbott Laboratories as part of a joint venture. But from the beginning, it's been plagued with problems. There, there has always been a lot of scandal around Lupron. Uh, there, there are, it's, there are a ton of adverse side effects uh, associated with it. I mean, this is a drug that, from the very beginning, uh, people have had kind of, um, let's just, let's just call, let's just say, uh, reluctance to to normalize its use. And I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, in 2009, a doctor named Peter Allen of the Penn State uh, uh, Medical School told the Chicago Tribune that Lupron deprives users of the benefits of puberty and can also adv uh, adversely affect cardiovascular and uh, reproductive health. That was in 2009. In 2010, uh, Allen authored a study that was submitted to the FDA on the use of Lupron for children. 
And that study conspicuously omitted two of the uh, more severe side effects, one which adversely affects uh, bone health. And that study was funded or sponsored by Abbott Laboratories. Uh, the thing about Lupron is, is that it's used for other things, not just for suppressing puberty in children. It's used for treating um, uh, symptoms related to prostate cancer in men, symptoms related to endometriosis in women, uh, but it's also used to chemically castrate the most deviant kinds of sex offenders, the ones who are most likely to repeat because they can't control themselves. It's only used to treat the most extreme sex offenders because it has so many side effects. But now we use it. I mean, this doesn't say much, but the FDA hasn't authorized it for use with regard to puberty suppression in trans youth. But it's now one of the top two drugs, and I think it, it's actually the most common drug. The other one is uh, Suprelin LA, but it's more expensive. So Lupron is really the go-to for the, the sequence of suppressing puberty, which then leads to uh, cross-sex hormones and then medical surgeries, right? Um, Lupron is not approved by the FDA for that use. Again, not that that really matters because, I mean, the FDA is not the last word on what's right or wrong. But, but it tells you that something is deeply wrong here. Um, and you can connect all of these different doctors who you'll hear uh, or read about how gender affirm saying that gender affirming care is life saving. And so one of these is uh, Dr. Stephen Rosenthal, who wrote an article in the San Francisco Chronicle condemning a bill in Idaho that would, if, it, if it would have been signed into law, it would have uh, banned the administration of hormones, uh, puberty suppression, and surgeries to kids. Dr. Rosenthal said that it was nothing short of life-saving to give kids access to this treatment, right? Which is not Which true. Sounds... There's no data proving that at all. Right. No, well, and the thing is, is that even the data that you could argue at some point did suggest that basically all this stuff is proven false. Yeah. Like, and we can talk about the Dutch protocol, but basically all the, the, da the data that people will point to is either deeply flawed or ends up being mm -hmm. uh, proven false in the mm -hmm. end. So it, you almost don't even have to address the, the arguments um, from, mm -hmm. from that perspective because they always end up falling apart somehow. And we can talk about the Dutch thing, but, but basically, so yeah, Rosenthal, you know, he cares deeply about kids, right? Uh, we, we certainly don't want kids killing themselves if they can't immediately get access to puberty suppression and, and cross-sex hormones and stuff. Well, it turns out that Rosenthal is a doctor who has received money in connection to both Lupron and Superlin LA, both of the, the two main drugs used in, in transgender, uh, uh, the gender, the, the so-called gender affirming care model. It's difficult to use these terms because they're all just euphemisms for like the most grotesque uh, things that we're doing to kids, right? But yeah, gender affirming care. So Rosenthal has received money in connection to both of those drugs. And what that means is, is that he gets money to go around the country and talk about them and conferences and things like that. So, but not only has he received money in connection to both of those of those drugs, uh, Lupron being manufactured by AbbVie and Superlin LA being manufactured by Endo Pharmaceuticals, I looked at a repository of uh, projects funded by the National Institutes of Health, and Rosenthal's research into early medical intervention uh, for transgender youth received a $5.7 million award. So I'm sure that Rosenthal and a lot of these doctors really probably do believe in this stuff. In other words, they're ideologues. They really do believe this, you know, the things that they're saying. But it also happens that there are nice financial incentives to say these things. 
All right. If you have not gotten Good Ranchers yet, what in the world are you waiting for? I've been telling you about the wonders of Good Ranchers for what seems like years at this point. A little over a year, I think. Our family just benefits from Good Ranchers so much. We get our box of meat. It shows up on our front door. We put the meat in the freezer, and then we're good to go. That's one part of every meal that I just don't have to think about, and I'm always looking for ways to make our lives easier as a family. And I love knowing that all of the meat is from American Farms. I love knowing the people that own Good Ranchers. They're awesome, Christian, America-loving people. So there's nothing not to feel good about here. And they've got a great deal that's still going on right now. Just, I think today is actually the last day of this. It's their Black Friday offer that's extended two free 12-ounce Black Angus New York strips, two free pasture-raised chicken breasts with your order. Go ahead and subscribe. Get it as a gift for someone in your life you know would appreciate this. Go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. Use discount code Allie to take advantage of that deal. It's American meat delivered right to your front door. Goodranchers.com slash Allie. It is a combination of ideology and greed because going back to the anorexia conversation, I guess a lot of money perhaps could be made in marketing to young women, diet pills, laxatives, whatever it is to keep them skinny. That could become an entire industry, but it really didn't, at least not in the same way that this is. So ideology obviously plays a big part, but who are these ideologues or these just greedy people at the top who are really pushing this? I mean, why has this taken off in a way that anorexia didn't, at least on like an official industry level. Yeah. Well, I, sh- I, I forgot to mention that uh, Dr. Allen, who initially said that Lupron deprives people of, of you know, the good uh, effects of puberty and things like that. And then, for, you know, unexplicably wrote that study uh, that was submitted to the FDA that omitted some of the more severe consequences between 2013 and 2018. Uh, financial records show that uh, Dr. Allen received more than $300,000 in connection to Lupron. And that was just what I found in the ProPublica database. He received more money in, specifically in connection to Lupron uh, Depot Pediatric, which is the one that's used for kids uh, more recently that. O- open uh, the, the ProPublica database that I used uh, did not have the, the kind of like the fine uh, delineation because there are different kinds of Lupron that are given to adults and children. But we can pretty much assume that a lot of that money between 2013 and 18 was was related to the the pediatric um, use of that medication because that's what Alan was writing about right when he submitted right. this report to the FDA. Right. So I mean, but again, it, some of these people are cheap dates. Like Dr. Allen received hundreds of thousands of dollars in connection to this stuff. Some people receive much less than that, and I think uh, that gets back to the question of ideology. I think the reason that something like transgenderism has taken off the way that anorexia never did is that it, it's it's just, I mean, I don't know, how, how do you make money off of anorexia uh, in a way that you, I mean, besides, I guess, like clothing, right? And uh, advertisements, but it's, it's just, I don't know, different diet yeah, pills. It's just difficult. Yeah, yeah, dieting pills. But but I mean, it just seems harder um, to make something like anorexia profitable. I, maybe, I mean, this sounds kind of macabre, but maybe because the, the people that are anorexic are, are probably yeah. going to die faster, right? Right, right. Where you can you can keep someone who's going through the whole transgender process a lot, basically hooked on this stuff, 
for the uh, rest of their lives. And it doesn't work to fundamentally change society the way that I think transgender ideologues want. I think that they have an interest or they think that they have an interest in the breakdown of any kind of tradition or reality. And so that includes gender, that includes marriage, that includes natural procreation. And so I think the transgender movement is convenient in a lot of ways, profit as you're covering here, but also in advancing the societal goals that a lot of progressives think that they have and just the general breakdown of reality. It really is the ultimate two plus two equals five. And any dystopian novel can tell you that that's what the people in charge want to be able to convince you is true. No, I'm glad that you said that because it, it, it turns my mind to the John Jones case. So I actually opened my report with this and the John Jones case is what I call like the kind of like patient zero of transgenderism, Yeah, a man named David Reamer. So David Reamer was born Bruce Reamer, uh, but um, his, his penis was severely damaged during a botched circumcision. And in 1967, uh, his parents took him to a, uh, an influential psychologist and sexologist named John Money. So Money opened the Johns Hopkins uh, Gender Identity Clinic in 1966. It was an extremely controversial thing at the time, uh, but Money was a really good marketer. So when he opened this clinic, he went to the New York Times and he knew that if he gave an exclusive statement to the Times, the Times was going to be friendly and its, its coverage was going to be positive about the Gender Identity Clinic. And that would set the tone for the rest of the media. And it worked. So um, the Reamer family had heard about money and the research that he was doing with regard to sex reassignment. Uh, Money made his bones working with hermaphrodites, but he was really out to prove a general theory of human nature. And that is that the primary factors that determine psychosexual differentiation um, are not necessarily a matter of nature, but nurture. And so basically the parents had heard about these you know, radical ideas that John Money was pioneering through the media and they went to him. I mean, it doesn't really make sense to us now, right? In our shoes, because we've seen what this stuff looks like right. um, at its most extreme, but the parents were desperate and they basically hoped that Money could turn uh, Bruce Reamer into a girl so that he could have something of a normal life, right? Yeah. I mean, again, it doesn't really make sense to us. The parents were desperate. Um, but after their meeting, the parents were actually kind of reluctant because this is a pretty extreme thing, right? This this had, this kind of sex reassignment had, had never been performed on somebody who was born with normal genitals and nervous system. Yeah. So understandably, but you're being the told by a doctor that, you know, he John Money, as you said, he just believed that gender was something that was basically conditioned. And so if you raise someone as a girl, they'll be a girl and the insides really don't make a difference. And so yeah. I guess if you're told that by a doctor, there are still people who believe that today. And yeah. so it doesn't make sense to you and me, but apparently it still makes sense to a lot of crazy people out there. So I guess well, these the, the, parents just this, bought into it. Yeah. Well, this gets into the question of ideology really well, but basically... Um, in 67, they, they do this sex reassignment. Bruce Reamer becomes Brenda Reamer. And uh, until the age of 15, has no idea that Brenda was actually born a boy. Um, the, the, the case is called the John Joan case because uh, money concealed the identities of, the, of, of uh, Brenda. It's confusing because there's three names, Bruce, yeah. Brenda, and ultimately and David. David yeah. But basically, uh, money included the twin brother, Brian Reamer, in this experiment. Yeah. And 
this this is really uh, grotesque, but, but basically at the age of six, Money introduced the twin brothers to simulating sexual acts because he right. believed that the way that you get Brenda to really become a girl was to do the, these kinds of simulated sexual acts to affirm what Money called the gender schema. Hmm. And it, it, according to Brian Reamer, on at least one occasion, Dr. Money photographed uh, Brian and Brenda simulating having yeah. sex. I mean, really disgusting stuff, Awful. right? But basically, the study was a failure. Um, money marketed it as a total success, but Brenda was miserable throughout his entire as David Reamer was miserable throughout his entire adolescence. Like it never worked, right? Money knew that, but he marketed it as a success. And even when the truth came out that the, that the whole experiment was a complete failure, and that David Reamer was miserable, um, the the one of um, of Money's academic rivals, his name was. Uh, his last name is Diamond. I can't remember his first name. I, I talk about him in my report. But he said, like, when I was writing about this stuff and, like, exposing it um, from, from a scientific perspective, what I found was that people believed in the success of the John Joan case as almost a kind of religious article of faith. Hmm. Like, nothing that this uh, doctor, nothing that he could write or say could shake people of their belief that... Uh, that Bruce Reamer was transformed into a girl, Brenda, before he decided to just become a man again. Like they, yeah. they just ref people and, and money went to the grave uh, having never publicly um, apologized for what he did. And mm -hmm. in the end, uh, David Reamer ended up blowing his head off with a shotgun in 2004. And, and his that was twin brother did, too. Right. Killed himself. His, his in another twin brother. Way. His twin brother died, uh, died of an uh, antidepressant overdose two years before. And, and there was, you know, all this kind of like, well, they, they were troubled and they had financial problems and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, I, I wonder what could have been at the source of the trauma in the right. lives of the Rima brothers, right? Right. But the point is, is that um, th that was, I think, the ultimate case of ideology. Uh, the John Joan case was a complete failure, but but even when it was completely disproven and ripped to shreds, people continued to believe in it. Yeah. And I think part of that was the fact that that money went to the media and uh, it was it was promoted as a success by Time magazine. Uh, the New York Times book review also helped promote promote the experiment as a success. Like it, it became uh, it filled the pages of textbooks from sociology to endocrinology and 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 you name it, like it, it was just promulgated as as an article of faith that this is proof that we can kind of just snap our fingers, and by the proper application of of man's reasoned and and, and technical powers, we can just kind of play with human nature. Actually, yeah. human nature as such doesn't really exist. All right, another quick pause to tell you about Ginucell, an awesome skincare company. This again makes for a great Christmas gift for a loved one in your life or maybe to yourself. Ginucell's most popular skincare package is 75% off right now at ginucell.com slash Allie. They've got all kinds of stuff, especially if you're looking into kind of natural anti-aging methods. If you've got, you know, the forehead wrinkles, the fine lines, the skin redness, the bags or puffiness under your eyes, nothing wrong with that. But maybe you're looking for a non-invasive way to kind of improve those things. You should try out Ginucel. They've got this hyaluronic acid serum for skin hydration that will restore youthful appearance. And they're so confident in that, that they guarantee that you will see positive effects in 12 hours or your money back, which is pretty amazing. 
Enter promo code Allie when you go to genucell.com slash Allie and you get an additional 10 off your 10% off your entire order. That's incredible. So 70% off, then plus 10% off with my code. Every order today is instantly upgraded to free express shipping. Genucell.com slash Allie. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Allie. Promo code Allie. In the nature versus nurture debate, progressives always assume things are nurture. That's why they think that they can rearrange society and that people will eventually comply because they don't actually believe that we are made by a creator with not only certain inherent rights, but also just certain um, inherent characteristics and needs. They think that they can replace them with whatever idea that they have. Um, Going back to the money conversation about this. Well, one thing I do just want to say, so we're talking about profit, but something that you see in money, something that you see in Kinsey, something that you see in um, Gail Rubin and all of these queer apologists throughout the 60s and 70s. I mean, a common thread in all of them is pedophilia apologists. So we're talking about ideology as a part of this. We're talking about profit as a part of this. But I don't think that we can discount that perversion is also a huge part of this. I think pornography is a huge part of this, especially for the men who start to identify as women. And so, as you said, it is a leviathan because there's so many aspects of society that have really been growing underneath the surface for the past 50 to 60 years that have led to this moment. And the prophet is really, I think, just kind of a response to the ideology and the perversion and the worldviews that led us here. So how in the world, how in the world do we respond to that? I think that the right response to it, you know, uh, ideologically, we're trying to respond to it philosophically, biologically, all of these things. But I don't know if we have even begun to chip away at the profit part of this, the part of this that has become so corporate, which has been wedded together by with government power. Like, I don't even know how to begin to approach all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, go, really quick, going back to the, to the money case, the, one of the reasons also that to your, to your point about, you know, uh, how, how these dynamics work, one of the reasons this, these experiment was so quickly embraced was because it it fit the zeitgeist right uh and in particular it 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 fit the the views of feminists who were trying to disprove any kind of biological basis for the differences between the sexes yeah so so you're right it was part of this broader kind of rebellion against human nature um that that the left has been waging for the longest time i think i mean geez the, the problem with ideology is that the problem with ideology is that no amount of facts and logic, as conservatives like to say, that you can muster will ever overcome it. Um, it it's really not accountable to, to to the better argument or whatever. And this is why I don't really think. I mean, there are, there are people that you can reach, people that are kind of on the fence about these things, and you you see this now. Uh, I, I don't really have any sympathy, and I don't give any credit to the New York Times, but the New York Times recently had that article. That was talking about how you know maybe we should pump the brakes on on giving kids hormones and things like that, uh, but of course like the reason I don't care about that and the reason I did I didn't like share that article or celebrate it was because the New York Times yeah, is complicit same. in all this stuff. Right. Like this is your fault. Yeah. Uh, and and now you're like oh we we should uh, we should maybe ask some questions before we irreversibly ruin the lives of children right, um, but I think that the only 
oftentimes the only antidote for ideology is just a confrontation with reality. Like people have to see for themselves the consequences of these things or know someone who experiences the consequences of these things. But but me like writing or debating with them is, is not going to change their mind. The, the only people you can hope to reach, I think, in that way are people that are kind of undecided, that kind of intuitively sense that something's wrong, uh, but are afraid to say something because, I mean, you, you look around, you see what happened, like, what what happened to uh, like people like Dr. Lippman, right? Uh, they they try to destroy you. Uh, you're, you're painted as not only someone who's kind of backwards and bigoted, but also as someone who's endangering the lives of children. Mm-hmm. That by depriving them of this treatment, uh, you're basically putting them on path to kill themselves. Yeah, it, and you're it, called a terrorist if you highlight yeah. the fact that there are hospitals that are cutting off the healthy breasts of twelve year old girls. That's right. Yeah. So. I mean, that's that's the the sort of black pill, if you will, of of ideology yeah. and, and ideologues. And I, I cite Bur- uh, James Burnham in my report, who's uh, a big influence on me. And he talks about this, that basically the problem with arguing with an ideologue is that the ideologue in his mind is already won before the debate even begins. They've, yeah. they've already decided that they're right and that any any uh, rebuttal that you throw at them uh, will, will simply kind of bounce off um the the bubble of ideology um so that's why i think that the solutions are not necessarily i mean obviously you have to be able to to point to things like uh the studies and things like that and show why the stuff is bad like that's that's a huge part of it uh or not just bad but also based on bad science like uh i'll get into the into what i think is the power component but the i think the dutch protocol is, is a good example of this so the gender affirming model is is largely based on a study that was published in 2014 by a Dutch team um, that conducted an experiment with a group of adolescents. And the point of this was to to figure out if you could develop a protocol to determine whether an individual would benefit from medical intervention. That is the sequence of suppressing puberty, administering cross-sex hormones, and uh, surgeries. And during this experiment, uh, one patient died from a post uh, post surgical infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were several new diagnoses of metabolic illness, and several pa- uh, several subjects dropped out. And despite the fact that you had all these problems with the study, it was promulgated as a uh, as a success, of course, by uh, media outlets like the New York Times. Uh, but that became the kind of like medical basis for doing this stuff. That again, we we can properly discern who would benefit from being subjected to this treatment. The problem is, is that uh, the people that tried to replicate the, the Dutch protocol couldn't do it. Uh, and, and basically, like the the entire thing has 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 fallen apart. And that's why you see other countries in Europe uh, backpedaling on on transgenderism uh, as, it, as it pertains to young people. Like the United States is singularly committed to all of this stuff more than any other country. You're seeing clinics in Europe being shut down over this stuff. Uh, protocols are being rewritten because again, we're we're coming to the conclusion that a lot of this stuff was wrong. Um, and with the Dutch protocol, that's become the basis of, of a lot of the stuff in the US, it wasn't even, it's not even applicable to current populations. For example, in, in, in the Dutch study, subjects younger than 18 were not eligible for surgeries. But in the United States, an NIH-funded study has recommended uh, mastectomies for patients as young as 13. The uh, WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, has recommended that puberty suppression can begin as young as nine. So 
I mean, it's really extreme how we're committed to this stuff in the United States. By we, I mean the medical establishment, the political establishment, obviously not you and I. And so that's why I think that apart from bringing to bear the evidence and, you know, point even pointing to other countries that are trying to roll back the tide on this stuff to show that we're on the right side when it comes to facts, I think you also need the proper application of political power. And I think a good example of that that's on everyone's mind is, is what Florida is trying to do with this stuff. Yes. And I, I want to hear more about the political power component. Let me read something from um, from your report about where a lot of this money is coming from. And it's really bipartisan in a lot of ways. So you write that in 2021, the Ballard Partners signed a lobbying agreement with Freedom for All Americans, a Washington-based nonprofit, pushing for the passage of the Equality Act, which would enable the federal government to infringe upon the individual liberties in the name of anti-discrimination, and we can link a past episode that we've done on the Equality Act. Trent Morse, who served as President Trump's liaison to the Department of Health and Human Services, works at Freedom for All Americans. Democrats are the biggest beneficiaries of giving related to uh, LGBT issues like transgenderism. Uh, open secret status shows that in this uh, that they spent $6.9 million supporting Democrats, these groups, and only $79,800 on Republicans. But you're arguing that it's both Republicans and Democrats that are a part of this, correct? Yes. Yeah, Democrats are, they definitely uh, reap the lion's share when it comes to giving related to this stuff. But no, unfortunately, it's not just Democrats. And I think in some ways, this makes the pro- this makes Republican advocacy for this stuff, frankly, more pathetic, because you're not even getting paid that much. And it's you could almost even say that the Republicans that believe support this stuff it's almost like they believe in it more than Democrats because Democrats at least get, you know, a, a yeah. decent amount of, of donations. Selfish for, motivation. For, yeah. Right. Uh, so you could say like Democrats are, are, are more cynical where Republicans, because they get so little out of this in terms of, you know, uh, monetary benefits. It's like on the one hand, it's it's pathetic. And on the other hand, it's pathetic because they, they don't even like profit from it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really when you think of it like that, it's 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 actually astonishing. And some like I said, in some ways worse than, than the Democratic Party. But an example of this that I cite in my report is the American Unity Fund, which is a, uh, quote, conservative LGBT advocacy organization. And uh, if you look at its uh, its its IRX, uh, excuse me, it's its IRS uh, tax forms. You'll see that this conservative LGBTQ advocacy organization has given money to organizations that support ballot initiatives for so-called transgender rights. I mean, these are like major players in the conservative political scene that you can connect to uh, people like uh, the athlete formerly known as Bruce Jenner. Yeah. Uh, And and like like. Republican mega donors like Paul Singer. So yes, Republicans, you could argue, are like a, a smaller part of the problem because Democrats are obviously the ones that are leading the charge on this and also reaping the, like most of the benefits from it. But Republicans are complicit as well. I mean, I r- really can't get over that. Like I, I was uh, almost blue in the face when I kept pointing out that that the I mean a problem with like the Trump moment was the fact that we we almost or not almost, but there was a moment where it sounded like Republicans were going to call Democrats the real transphobes mm-hmm. because of how Jenner was being attacked during uh, that the whole gubernatorial candidacy campaign. Yeah. Right. 
I'm sure it happened. And it, it it was really cl- like it was like on it was like on the on the the tip of these people's mouths. Oh like, yeah. Democrats say they love transgender people, but they won't vote. They won't vote for our candidate. It's like this is insane. I'm pretty sure that that actually was said. I'm pretty sure Probably. that people like Tommy Lahren actually did say something like that. I'm I'm sure that there was a, like an actual Democrats with a real transphobes moment. Um, oh, yeah. But again. It, it's it's more obscene, I, in my view, when when Republicans do it, um, because it, it's yeah. like you people actually seem to believe in this more than like Nancy Pelosi does. You don't get anything out of it. And you're obviously not interested at all in representing the interests of most of your base, where at, yes. at least Democrats are reflecting what a lot of their constituents really want. They're not only getting profit from it, but they are also getting support from their base. Whereas Republicans really don't care. They really don't care if their base gets angry about this. I mean, as you point out a lot, Republicans really probably even more than Democrats do truly hate and resent the values of their voters. I would say a lot of mainstream big media outlets really hate their audience, like really think that we're just a bunch of rubes and archaic barbarians for believing in things like traditional marriage and like you can sense that superiority complex that they have but i mean i i don't really know the answer i'm not going to vote democrat i'm not going to support the democrat platform and until we have more Ron DeSantis's, I'm not really sure what to do. It doesn't seem like there are a lot of Republicans who are interested in wielding the power that is available to them to put a stop to any part of this Leviathan. And so, yeah. I mean, talk about a black pill. Oh, <laughs> what are we supposed to do about it? I think that things have to get worse before they get better. Um, I just think that this is something that is a, it's it's a matter of time. It's it's a, and by time I mean. Um, we, you're not going to see, I think, a, a strong, desirable course correction in the immediate future. I think you just have to wait until there are more people like Ron DeSantis, more people like J.D. Vance that are willing to not just talk about these issues, but take them on in a smart way. Right. Because I think that's that's actually a huge problem as well. Uh, Republicans will often talk about things um, and pay lip service to the things that we that we also care about, but then not do anything. And an example I always use is is Greg Abbott in Texas. The governor recently declared that uh, there's an invasion in Texas, which we all know. And uh, but when you actually look at in terms of like policy and what he's saying he's going to do, it was it was interesting uh, how quickly he was actually criticized by by like people who are actually very smart in in the movement and uh, like <clears throat> decent conservative policy wonks for for lack of a better word who pointed out that you're calling this an invasion but you're not actually treating it like one in practice and you're not using all of the available tools in your toolbox to deal with the crisis on the border uh, as as a governor of Texas. In other words, you're just paying lip service to these things. You're just you're just issuing strongly worded letters and tweeting, but you're not actually doing everything that you could be doing. And I think that that that's really de- I don't want to say demoralizing, but it's the problem with that is is if you do that enough times, people become cynical. They stop believing that that it, anything else is possible. The, uh, they, they basically kind of check out of of the political um, the political process. And I, I think you you kind of see that right now, especially like after midterms. Um, but. My view is is that things actually have to get that bad before they get better. Like 
I, I don't like again. It's, it's the it's related to the issue of ideology, right? Um, sometimes there is no better argument, and you you just have to let people be confronted by reality and and like the consequences of either the policies they support or their inaction. And uh, between you know now and then, uh, we just have to fight where we can. And in, like states like Florida are trying to do what they can on the state level. Um, other states are trying as well. Uh, but obviously, I mean, like there's this whole problem of the courts. Uh, that will just, you know, decide to arbitrarily overturn the will of of uh, of Republican voters in red states that want to push back on this stuff. I mean, it's it's a really uphill battle. Uh, it's one that I, it's hard to think of an analog for this kind of thing. Um, but again, that's why I'm hopeful about political leaders like DeSantis in Florida. Uh, if you follow me, you know that I'm no one's cheerleader uh, in terms of in terms of politics. But I think that Florida is a rare example of yeah. of a where you have a state GOP that's actually trying. And like, I've spoken to the people on DeSantis's team that are involved in a lot of the stuff and, and they are actually very smart and they're, and they're very serious and, and they really do care about these issues. And basically the question is, is like, how do we, how do we take that and then drop it into other red states? Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's tough, but I think that's really all we can do right now is basically focus on where we live. Yeah. Um, stop, stop paying attention to the proclamations of Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and start focusing on what's happening uh, on the state level. Okay, Christmas break is coming up. In a couple weeks, your kids will be home and they'll have a lot of downtime and you don't want to hear them say ad nauseum, mom, I'm bored, mom, what are we going to do? And so you want to make sure that they are entertained, but in a healthy way, not just sitting them in front of screens or have them playing on their tablet. You want to make sure that they are still using and exercising their brains. And that's where Annie's Kit Clubs comes in. They have a subscription craft service. They send crafts to your home every month, perfect for kids ages about seven to 12. They've got woodworking kits, jewelry making kits for your daughter. They've got STEM projects, all different kinds of crafts that your kids are going to love. Best part about it is it comes with all of the supplies, all of the instructions you need. You don't have to run to the craft store to make sure that you have everything and you don't even really have to supervise them. They can do these crafts almost completely autonomously, just depending on what your kid is capable of. They also have a crafting service for you, and they are sure that you are going to love this. Just subscribe, and a craft will show up to your house every month. Go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. When you do, you get 75% off your first month. annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. I think it kind of starts for a lot of these people in power, just maybe the average individual with an attitude of not caring what you're going to be called. And that's not to say that you shouldn't care at all about the consequences that are coming if you push back against the LGBTQ lobby. As you talked about, it's a very powerful force. But I do see a lot of conservatives falling into not exactly what you just said about the, oh, you're the real transphobes, although I do think sometimes that happens with people like Caitlyn Jenner, but the um, I'm not anti-trans, but or it's not anti-trans to say that men shouldn't go into girls bathrooms. And I'm like, you know, it actually is. It actually is. And that's yeah. OK. It's OK yeah. to be that. Don't defend yourself because it's not going to matter. 
Who yeah. are you even defending yourself yeah. against? You're defending yourself against people who want you to lose custody of your child because you won't allow your 12-year-old son to be chemically castrated. Like, who are you yeah. even trying to appeal to? So I think it does take a hardened attitude um, by a lot of people just to say, I do not care what you call me. I do yeah. not care what you're going to do. I care about the lives and the bodies and the well-being of children. And that's what I'm, I care about reality, by the way. And that's yeah. what I'm fighting for. And there's nothing that you can do or say or call me to stop me. And it's just going to take a little bit, I think, to wake the rest of the people up to that, as you said. And that is actually why the arguments and the logic and the appeals actually do matter. Because even if they never convince anyone on the left or anyone profiting from this, there are still millions of people who do agree with us, but who just not have, who just have not been convinced yet to be activated against it. So that's yeah. who, that's who I care about. And yes. that's who yes. I think that, you know, still has a lot of potential in this. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And that's who I wrote this report for, right? Yes. Is exactly that. The, the people, like I said earlier, who are who are on the fence, but intuitively sense that something is wrong. Right. That, that something is wrong and it's not going to stop on its own. And I think on the, on the note um, that you just mentioned, there's a another doctor named Johanna Olson Kennedy. And I, this gets to the whole thing of, of it needing to get a lot worse before it gets better. So in 2017, at the uh, United States Professional Association of Transgender Health Conference, Olson Kennedy talked about how there have been cases where she has had to bring the courts to bear on recalcitrant parents who have children that decide that they are uh, trans and the parents uh, decide that they're, they're they're not going to you know begin the process of allowing their child to to transition to a different gender. Um, and Olson Kennedy said that in several cases where parents simply are given every chance to you know, comply, to get with the times, but remain recalcitrant, she has brought the courts to bear, which is a nice way of saying, I have broken up families in order to transition kids. Right. And um, Olson Kennedy also was, um, she was one of the, the authors of this NIH study that recommended mastectomies for 13 year olds. So there is no opting out of this. Like they're doing, on the one hand, they're doing a lot of the research with your money, whether you like it or not. Um, and on the other hand, they will literally come for your kids. Uh, Abigail Schreer has documented examples of this stuff for City Journal. I mean, but it's you, you hear about this more and more. A child will decide that they're trans uh, because of something that they either heard or saw or, you know, in more and more cases heard from their teachers at school. And then the child comes home and says they're trans. The parents say that's ridiculous. And then next thing you know, there's there's social workers and courts involved. Um, but it needed to. I think it needed to get to that point exactly so people so that basically the the cost benefit. Like, do do I say these things that could seem transphobic, uh, or do I keep my mouth shut and live in a society where? social workers and courts can take your kids away to forcibly transition them after yeah. they get brainwashed. Yeah. And I mean, it's the, the, uh, which one of these things is worse becomes pretty obvious in that light. Right. And yeah. you're totally right. Like you don't need to preface your reservations about these things or your, your, your protests about these things with, uh, the, these qualifications like, well, like I love trans people or whatever. Like I, you know, I'm not a transphobe. You don't have to do that. Like it's just stop. The, and the moment that you do that, you you kind of put yourself. Uh, you basically accept 
the left's moral high ground. Exactly. Basically, they're the ones looking down on you and you yeah. have to kind of, before you begin talking to them, you have to apologize, yeah. you know, before you're allowed to speak your piece. So. Yeah. I tell my audience a lot because I think that they are the number one target of what I call empathy shaming or toxic empathy. It's Christian women, suburban moms. And I tell them, don't let yourself be emotionally extorted and empathy shamed into either just shutting up or caveating and nuancing everything that you believe until it just sounds like you don't believe anything at all. And just from a Christian perspective, I always remind people like you can't out love God. And if God says that he made us male and female, you're not being unloving by agreeing with him. It's actually the most loving thing that you can do is agree with him. And so as you said, by saying, well, I'm not this or I'm not that or, you know, providing all these carve outs, you are actually giving the left the authority to define what's loving, what's bigoted, and what's not. And I just reject that authority entirely. Um, So thank you so much for writing this huge report. And it really is. It's for those people who need to be armed with the tools, not only for their own convictions, but also to convince people in their lives of what a huge problem this is. Um, Where can people find it? And we'll make sure to link it in the description as well. The AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. And yeah, it's it's 10,000 words, um, but I, I try to make it as readable as possible. It's not like a boring white paper. Yeah, it is very uh, it, it's, it, Yeah, it's written as kind of like a, like a I don't want to say a novel, but it's it's written more in the style of a, of a novel uh, as opposed to just, you know, like a, a white paper that's going to make your eyes water over. Yeah. And um, I, I plan to also do an audio version of it and basically just read it and then uh, release it somehow as a kind of podcast so that you can also listen to it. Good idea. Um, and I've got a kind of write-up on why I chose the name at my substack at contra.substack.com. And uh, there's one thing, I think I may have said Dr. Peter Allen. It's Dr. Peter Lee of the uh, Penn State College of Medicine. I think I might have misspoken on his last name because there's, I have a list of, of or several doctors yeah, that are mentioned in my report. And so I just want to make sure I didn't combine two of the names. So it's Peter yeah. Lee. Okay, well, we will link it. And so if anyone needs clarity on anything that you said or wants to hear it expounded upon, they can they can read it in the description. Uh, thank you so much, Pedro, for taking the time to come on. And thanks again for writing this. It's really important. Thank you.